From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Last week, the Space Command came online. It's what's known as a combatant command group within the U.S. military and serves as a way to streamline the nation's space military assets. It's also seen as the precursor to the Space Force, a brand new military branch dedicated to all things space. We'll talk with Congressman Mike Waltz. He's a Republican representing Florida's 6th District. He also sits on the House Armed Services Committee and the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. We'll talk about the Space Command and the politics of exploration as NASA again looks to return to the moon. And speaking of the moon, a recent report in Wired uncovered tiny little stowaways on Israeli's lunar lander Bereshit. Should we be worried about microscopic bugs taking over the moon? We'll ask a panel of planetary scientists in a brand new segment on this show called I've Always Wondered. But first, the politics of space. I visited Congressman Waltz at his office in Palm Coast, Florida. We began the conversation talking about Space Command, and I asked the congressman... Why now? Well, I think that's it's multifaceted. So I really had the honor of being down in uh, Cape Canaveral for the 50th anniversary of Apollo uh, with Vice President Pence and uh, many of their folks from Florida. Um, the difference between 1969, uh, when we when we first went to the moon, and 2019, 50 years later, is that essentially, uh, bottom line, our entire modern way of life. Our entire modern economy is dependent on what's up in space. That's from banking, financial institutions, markets, uh, how things arrive from around the world and into Walmart for under a dollar, navigation, how I got here today, um, agriculture, you name it, is dependent on space. Uh, Unfortunately, that infrastructure that we are all so dependent on now is old, it is rickety, It is not redundant, and it is highly vulnerable. So that's one piece. Separately, from a national security standpoint, and by the way, I'm on both the Space Committee that has oversight of NASA, NOAA, the civilian aspects, but then also Armed Services, the Armed Services Committee in the House, which has oversight, obviously, of the military, the Air Force, and the military intelligence community. So I kind of see both sides of this. So the other piece on the national security side is the Chinese and the Russians, has, have explicitly said in their national security strategies, and President Xi has said openly in speeches, that uh, if we ever go to blows uh, between the United States and those countries, I pray that we don't, but if we do, they're not going to defeat the United States by sinking our aircraft carriers or going tank to tank or soldier to soldier. They're going to take out the infrastructure that all of our military depends on to shoot, move, and communicate and that our economy depends on. The Chinese have aggressively, in the last 10 years, developed those anti-satellite capabilities. Uh, Many of them are becoming operational. And uh, I think it is absolutely time to have a separate space force. Uh, The House version of the defense bill has it as a space corps, like the Marine Corps, which has some slight but important differences. to dominate and to be able to defend and ensure America continues to lead in space. So the analogy that I often use is the creation of the Air Force. Uh, Post-World War II uh, or pre-World War II, the, uh, the Air Force was part of the Army, the Army Air Corps. And then after World War II, we saw the need for a separate service 
that has unique capabilities, recruitment requirements, acquisition authorities to ensure the United States dominates air power for the rest of the 20th century. And we've been highly successful in doing that. I think we need to take the same approach to dominating space power uh, in the 21st century, particularly now that we have peer competitors trying to challenge us in space. Now, China and Russia have said that they have those those capabilities. Are we behind the eight ball on this with, with just, just getting the ball rolling now? I think, frankly, we lost some ground in the 2000s uh, and in the early part of this decade. Uh, it was a wake-up call for us in 2007 when the Chinese announced that they were going to shoot down one of their own malfunctioning satellites and did so. Uh, successfully. And that was a wake-up call to us that they had that capability. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took another seven years between 2008 and 2000, I believe, 14, for us to kind of doctrinally within the Pentagon to declare space a warfighting domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very important because then that's what kind of flips the switch for uh, our procurement, our research and development to kind of get the ball rolling to develop, one, the capability to defend our assets, but two, also a capability of, uh, to take down their assets if it ever comes, uh, you know, if it unfortunately ever comes to that. There's some big philosophical questions you have to answer now that you're taking warfare into space. Right. I mean, is this the right direction to be going? Well, I, for, to be clear, I don't think that... Um, the United States is taking warfare into space. I think we're responding to uh, both what the Chinese have now demonstrated their capability to do, the Russians have demonstrated a capability, and importantly, now the Indians have as well. So, so that those capabilities are migrating, and I think it would be irresponsible if we one couldn't defend what you know again our economy and our military depends highly on to be able to function. But then two, you know, the best way to I think keep the peace up there is to be able to hold their assets at risk as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we've done in the nuclear space. That's what we're developing in the cyberspace. Um, and, you know, the, the, I think the best way to be able to keep the peace is to show strength and show capability. Now, Space Command coming online, that yeah. was directed by the president. Um, you and Congress are now responsible for um, Space Force, and there are right. two different draft um, proposals in, right. in the Senate and the House. Does there look like there's um, congressional consensus on how this will roll out? And could we see a Space Force come online as early as the the 2020? So what came out of – either way, I think you are going to see a new and separate branch of the military. And I think that's important. Uh, You know, it was billed by some critics as just creating additional bureaucracy and what does that really solve. My view is what it does is it gives – uh, folks who are responsible for our defense in space an equal seat at the table when it comes to resource allocation in the Pentagon. And that is incredibly important if you've ever served in the Pentagon uh, and understand how those decisions are made. Uh, unfortunately, uh, at, you know, look, the Air Force does many things well, but what it often focuses on is having the highest, fastest, uh, and best fighters and bombers. Uh, and if you're not in, a, in the cockpit of a fighter or a bomber, I don't think you get, you know, kind of the, the, the cream of the crop when it comes to the Air Force. So giving the Space Force a, an equal and separate seat at the table is important. Uh, what came out of the House and what I supported is a Space Corps. So the model there is the Marine Corps, which is a separate service but sits under the Department of the Navy. 
So what does that mean? That means it, you know, it's trigger pullers and, and the folks who directly do what Marines do best uh, are, are separate and under a completely separate chain of command, but they don't have a separate, for example, service academy or doctors or lawyers or, you know, all of those support services. That'll be kind of the same model, at least on the House version, of what we're talking about with a Space Corps. It'll sit under the Department of the Air Force from a civilian oversight standpoint, the Secretary of the Air Force, but it'll have a separate four-star general. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, it's being uh, billed as the Commandant of the Space Corps. Uh, and that has to be worked out with a Senate version, which has some differences in the chain of command. But either way, long way of answering your question, I do think we're going to see a separate service. And what is, what's budgeted for it in, in this uh, 2020 draft proposal? How much is the Space Force going to cost? Well, it's, it's budgeted, it's right around $100 million, uh, to get everything stood up per year. Uh, I, I don't remember the specific numbers, but that's about the rough figure uh, looking out over the next five years. And that is, you know, the Space Command will uh, pull in all of the services. The Army and the Navy have huge equities uh, in low Earth orbit and what's up in space on its precision and timing. You know, all of our bombs are now guided by GPS. Our long-range missiles are guided by GPS. Obviously, the Navy has its situational awareness of its fleets are uh, dependent on what's up there and its ability to communicate. So the Space Command will pull all of those services together, and I think uh, uh, create a much more functional force. Right now, uh, according to the GAO, uh, 66 different parts of the Pentagon have different types of authorities in space and, and and a finger in the acquisition of space assets. That needs to be streamlined and it needs to get, uh, we need to do a better job. So correct me if I'm wrong here, Space Command will streamline space assets. Yep. Space Force will give them a seat at the table for future. That's right. So think of, well, the, what the Space Force will also do will have, you know, it will recruit folks, it will train folks. It'll be a whole separate service, separate uniforms, separate culture, uh, I think we really need to give them, you know, their own focus, and they, you know, they have a lot of, uh, will have a lot of unique capabilities. So that's a whole separate service, uh, just like the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and the command will do the operational day-to-day functioning of, of what's up there in mm-hmm. space. And what's the timeline on this? There, is there a conference committee coming up on, on the defense the budget? So this, the professional staff are working as we speak. Uh, through some of those differences across the entire defense bill. And then the conference committee will be the first couple weeks of September when we go back into session in D.C. And that's for Space Force. And that is for that is for Space Force, yes. That's absolutely right. So switching gears a bit, let's look at the civilian side of things. Um, mm-hmm. This administration has charged NASA to land humans on the moon by 2024. Right. We've learned from NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine that's going to cost quite a bit of money. Is there congressional support for this um, increased charge? Yeah, I think there is. Uh, it's it's a bipartisan push. Uh, really, essentially, what we're doing is we're accelerating. You know, the original goal was 2028. We're accelerating that to 2024. So we have two main pieces there. One is the gateway, uh, uh, the lunar gateway, which is essentially will be a space station around the moon, uh, so that we are able to do a lot of the things that we need to to do uh, in deep space in preparation for going to Mars, and then the separate separate piece is to be able to land uh, on the moon, and that's the part that we're accelerating, which is being called the Artemis program. Uh, Artemis, of course, was the twin sister of Apollo, 
Um, so it's finding that $1.5 billion is never easy, uh, which is what the administration has requested to accelerate the program. And finding those pay-fors, uh, you know, I'm a fiscal conservative. Something has to give in order to pay for that. That's the part that we're, where we still have some work to do. Um, I just want to say separately, and, and this is just how the civilian and the military side of this are so intertwined, the Chinese have announced their intention to put a manned research station on the moon by the end of the next decade. This is an important point. The Chinese do not have a NASA civilian equivalent. They have one, but it's in name only. It's not really functional. Everything the Chinese are doing up in space is backed by the People's Liberation Army as a military component. Their astronauts are trained uh, and, and directed by the military. So really what that will be is a manned Chinese military station on the moon in addition to their low Earth, uh, low Earth space um, station that they're on track to put in place. And, and that's where I've asked a lot of questions of Administrator Bridenstine and NASA. Are they prepared to be able to operate in a possibly contested space. And that interoperability with the military, I think, is going to be very important. Congressman Mike Waltz, it sounds like there is a space race on the horizon with oh, China. Is that The 21st century space race is on. I mean, it's, it's on. Look, and I think we've been, frankly, asleep at the switch for some, for some time now. In the year 2000, China had about 10 satellites uh, up in space. Now they have over 250. So not only are they developing their own capability to project power globally, uh, to have their own GPS system, their own telecommunications, uh, but like I said, they also have the ability to put ours at risk and possibly take it down. So the other piece of that is, you know, like we're seeing with the debate over Huawei and 5G, uh, like we're seeing uh, on our technology theft, everything that goes through a Chinese satellite can potentially go then to the Chinese government uh, and to the Communist Party. And I think we need to be very aware of that, and that's why maintaining a free, independent uh, uh, U.S. and Western-backed infrastructure is so critical. Going back to Artemis and, yeah. and that 2024 mission, you said finding that $1.5 billion is going to be the, the, the challenge. Yeah. Are you optimistic as a fiscal conservative that you'll be able to find that $1.5 billion and then the tens of billions more that, that NASA will need? I'm going to be optimistic for now. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, right now things aren't, uh, are tough uh, in the Congress with a divided House and a divided Senate. Uh, but I have to tell you, uh, my experience thus far on the Science, uh, uh, Space, and Technology Committee has been relatively bipartisan, particularly compared to the many other uh, committees where they, where they have uh, far bigger and tougher uh, fights on their hands. So I'm optimistic that we can, that we'll be able to find those funds, we'll be able to shift those funds, and that, frankly, we can hold NASA to account to spend those funds incredibly efficiently. One of the things that we've had some tough conversations on is how their contracts are let, whether we need to move away from, from a contract standpoint to what we call uh, cost plus to firm fixed price that puts more of the onus on the contractors. Mm -hmm. uh, and really taking a tougher look at, you know, for example, we just had some testimony uh, and NASA told us it's going to take five years to develop a new spacesuit. If you look at what we did under the Apollo program, uh, you know, when, when John F. Kennedy announced that we were going to the moon, we didn't have a rocket. We didn't have a launch facility. 
We didn't have a lander. We, we, we didn't have the computer chips capable of doing it. So I think we can get back to that can-do attitude rather than zero risk, zero tolerance. And what I love is, a, to back to your point as a conservative, is that's the private sector that is really innovating and leading the charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's from SpaceX to Blue Origin to OneWeb. Uh, and so I think that interoperability between public NASA and the private sector is also going to be very important. And NASA, in many ways, needs to change the way it does business. There had been talks of scrapping SLS because of those contract issues and those cost overruns and delays. Um, you know, do you support moving to the private sector for, for the Artemis mission and, and tapping someone like SpaceX? Well, I, I, I don't think it's an either or. It's just how do they both work together? We will not be able to get the a number of launches to get the gateway in place, to get the lunar lander in place, uh, and to get the supplies up there that we need without a heavy dependency on the private sector. So we're excited uh, that SpaceX is announcing uh, its new program. It's going to go beyond the Falcon Heavy um, uh, and go, I forget the... Starship. Yeah, and go to the Starship. That uh, my understanding is either going to go from Florida or Texas, both the assembly and the launch, uh, which will be a vertical assembly that's taller than the Space Shuttle's uh, vehicle assembly uh, building that, that's currently standing down at Cape Canaveral. So that's going to be a fantastic asset mm-hmm. uh, that I think can complement SLS. But at the end of the day, we have to have that deep, deep space capability. Again, it, we, we just have to do better. Congressman Mike Waltz, thanks for being with us. All right. Thanks so much. It's now time for a segment we call I've Always Wondered. Each week, we'll take a deep dive into a space headline or answer your questions about science and exploration with our panel of expert scientists. Joining us today, University of Central Florida planetary scientists and the hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Josh Caldwell, Addie Dove, and Jim Cooney. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Well, a mission to the moon had some stowaways. An Israeli group failed to softly land its lunar spacecraft Beersheet earlier this year. Reporting from Wired revealed there was also a secret cargo on board. Dehydrated microscopic organisms called tardigrades. As a result of the crash, these little buggers could be scattered all across the surface. Uh, First of all, should we be worried? No. I'm not worried. Okay. Although, when I found out how... What a tardigrade is. I got a little bit worried about them attacking <laughs> me in my bed. Adorable they're looking. adorable, right? <laughs> they freak yeah. me out. Okay. They're little sucker mouths. So they're about half a millimeter, they? and this this terrified Josh. Okay. Well, Jim, what are they? Like, can you? Explain? They're little animals that are, you know, like I said, about half a millimeter when they're full grown. Uh, they're weird looking. They have eight legs and little weird mechanical mouths. They're they're crazy. And I but, sh- and we shouldn't be worried about this. <laughs> not the ones on the moon. In, in fact, I. I kind of feel like all of them should maybe go to the moon right now. <laughs> as soon as I found out they're big enough to see without a microscope and they have eight legs and crazy sucker I didn't sucker know you mouths. could see them without a microscope. I don't yeah. like them anymore. You can't like – You see? <laughs> you can see that they're there. You can't resolve them. You can't tell what they are. They just look like little specks in water or something without a microscope. Anything that looks like a terrifying microscopic monster should be invisible yeah. to the naked eye. It's my you general it's, rule of thumb. You know it's scary because they're also called water bears. That's true. And also called moss pigs. Anything moss, that's called that is terrifying. I feel like a moss pig is less terrifying so than a water why sh- bear. So why shouldn't we be terrified that these tiny little buggers that scare the crap out of Josh and I now are living on the moon? Well, so the reason this uh, sort of came up as something that might terrify people, right, is that the other 
really interesting thing about tardigrades is that they can survive a really huge range of extreme environments. So we've uh, been able to sort of rehydrate and bring to life tardigrades that have been exposed to really high levels of radiation, like some live in nuclear reactor uh, columns. There are some that have been dehydrated for 10 years or something that sort of got rehydrated and then were alive again. So that's why people are like extra concerned about these organisms in particular is because they are very resilient. Um, and so the fear, I think, sort of is like, OK, we sent these to the moon. They're going to survive. But the thing is, as long as there's not like you don't go there and then pour a bunch of water on them and like give them nice conditions, they're not going to come back to life. And they're not going to evolve into some extra scary organism while they're up there. <laughs> anything could happen, sure. Addy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, technically, anything. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, aren't there... Like, aren't there protocols in place to prevent something like this from happening? There are. NASA has the coolest job title in the world, in my opinion, is the Planetary Protection Officer. And that person is responsible for setting guidelines for what we can do in terms of potentially contaminating other places with biology, spores, bacteria, what have you, or for bringing stuff back from another place. So, for example, the Cassini spacecraft was crashed into Saturn because two moons of Saturn have been deemed potentially habitable. They have liquid subsurface water oceans, and we didn't want to crash Cassini, which has probably tardigrades on it, and Ooh. who knows what else Did you on put there. them there, Josh? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I might get in trouble if I reveal that. Uh, and so those things could have survived all those years in space and then land on an ocean and interact with the bugs on Enceladus and who knows what, or more likely make it impossible for us to really tell what was there in the first place or what we might have brought there. But the moon is a very, very dead place. It's not a potentially habitable body. And there's other microbes that are there because the astronauts left their waste. waste. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's one of your you specialties, say, Brendan. You can say they left their poop bags there, <laughs> They left right? their poop bags. Yes. Uh, does, does this, like, open up a broader question about, um, you know, NASA has – a planetary protection officer. They spend a lot of time making sure that we don't contaminate these other worlds and also bring other stuff back to us to possibly contaminate us here on Earth. But there's not someone that kind of does this for commercial payloads, right? Is is this time to have the conversation that there needs to be a, a giant bugger czar mm -hmm. that makes sure that nothing, <laughs> nothing gets onto these other worlds? That's an interesting question because even leaving aside the commercial thing, who enforces this? There's not really an enforcement agency that can do anything, even if it was determined that this particular lander shouldn't have brought a bunch of tardigrades to the moon, then what? Mm -hmm. uh, and so it is an interesting question. It is difficult to get anything to another world. Uh, Mars is the place that has the most potential for past life or maybe even present extraterrestrial life that's nearby. And SpaceX is talking about sending stuff there. Many countries have sent things to yeah. Mars. This seems like a thing that needs to be addressed in the in the fairly near future. Yeah. And, you know, there may be people going there soon. Yeah. And a lot of spacecraft have gone to Mars. They follow a certain standard. NASA ensures that all of our spacecraft follow standards for sterilization and that sort of thing. But it's a difficult problem. Mm -hmm. And But we can be assured that we're not going to have these giant moon <laughs> mutant tardigrades, mutant tardigrades <laughs> yeah. that are going to take over the moon they want their vengeance we're pretty sure about that pretty sure i'll i'll <laughs> take pretty sure for i'm the quite three confident yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've been speaking with university of central florida planetary scientists and the hosts of the podcast walk about the galaxy josh caldwell addy dove and jim cooney be sure to check out their podcast walk about the galaxy you can get it wherever you get this podcast or online at walkaboutthegalaxy.com 
If you've got a question for I've Always Wondered, send it in. Our email is arewetheryet at wmfe.org. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. If you've got a question for the new segment I've Always Wondered, or topic ideas, guest pitches, or just general feedback, shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org. You can also find and interact with the show on Twitter, Mars, or on Facebook. Search for Are We There Yet? Podcast. This podcast is a production of WMFE. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. For more space news, visit us online at wmfe.org slash space. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>